0: Hey Kevin, how are you? Hi Mike, very good, how are you doing? Yeah, very good, very good. A bit warm today, but yeah, it's (laughs) good. Yeah, that's a good thing. Exactly.
1: (laughs) So this feels a bit like part two. We, a couple of weeks ago, discussed about procurement and there's so many different ways that we can go with this in terms of looking at it from both sides. So yeah, I think it would be good just to pick up from where we left off a little bit, but yeah, focusing. I, I like the topic that you've had around focusing on protecting your margins, because it's really important that obviously you don't get yourself into a trap of just taking on business to win the business and then trying to make it profitable afterwards is, I would know from experience, very hard. So
0: Absolutely. There's a storm coming and there's going to be a bit of a race to the bottom going on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's where do you draw a line? I think to ignore yeah. the storm completely, you might completely lose out, but to ride the storm in a way that maybe you're trying to get pushed, also might not be the smartest move either. So yeah, let's dig into it.
0: I would agree, very good. So this is kind of like my, so I'll just give a quick run through of my kind of summary and then Kevin, just give your thoughts around that summary. So what we're gonna cover today really is, things are definitely really bad now. We all need to prepare for a tough negotiation with our clients when this V or W shaped recession does end. I think negotiation is more of a discipline than an art form. Um, I believe you can learn to be a good negotiator, you can learn to be an excellent negotiator, a discipline involved in that and a science. Uh, On the procurement side, you know, when you meet procurement professionals like me, you know, we're we're generally well-trained and savvy negotiators. So if you walk in and you've not prepared, you've got no tools in your kit bag and you think you're going to wing it, the chances are you won't come off as well as I will. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And maintaining that balance of the deal, the relationship, and delivering the service, obviously, is, uh, is, at the end of the day, critical. And there are some processes, tools, and templates you can use. Learning from the common negotiation mistakes is really important. And therefore, ultimately, I believe the prepared mind wins the day.
1: So, yeah, so on that side, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think being well-trained versus, and this is normally the case of on the um the buyer side they are well-trained on the seller side um, we were talking last time about you're maybe a bit too indebted to you've just won a piece of work or you feel like you've almost won a piece of work
0: yeah then
1: you end up potentially agreeing to stuff that you wouldn't do if you weren't as indebted to that, that exactly project. what would you suggest on the seller side where typically um, i'm looking at this from an agency owner perspective you get into running an agency normally because you're good at your craft. So in my case, SEO, um, obviously lots of different disciplines you could be from, but typically people that run certainly independent agencies are not normally business people from day one. I doubt they've had any training in all sorts of things, sales, finance, HR, but negotiation is one of the big things and you have to learn often from mistakes as you go along. But like, I've definitely learned from mistakes as I've gone along from a negotiation perspective. But are there any tips you would give just to maybe fast track that and try to level the playing field a little bit?
0: There definitely are. and In fact, there's some prompts in here yeah. uh, that basically cover that. So oh, okay, cool. um, let me skip to a very simple technique. Yeah. So this slide um, is basically, it's a slide that says, you know, 3D negotiations according to a guy called David Lacks of Harvard. The way that you can help level the playing field is by simply using a very easy to understand framework, which is there's three phases in the negotiation. There's the setup way before you start any negotiation at all, which is all around the context, the people you're negotiating with, who they are, the topic, et cetera.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then you design the deal. So at this stage, you've not met anyone. You just know you're going to be going into a negotiation. Yeah. The deal design is where you're thinking about your different parameters that you're prepared to negotiate around and what limits you've got. Right. And then you're into negotiating tactics. What happens is most people I see, so well over 75% of negotiations that I see, they focus on the tactic on the day, in the room, a hand-to-hand combat. Over half the value is created, well over half in the setup and the deal design. So the way to level the playing field is sit down, have a few tools, think it through, phone a friend, see what they think, and then walk into your negotiation. That's the number one principle for me about how you're going to level the playing field.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's just being prepared and knowing. I think knowing what they're going to ask for from their perspective. Also, I think where can you bend the rules is quite interesting from my perspective because sometimes i might be wrong but this is my agency perspective procurement might be trying it on they might be asking you questions that actually you should just say no to certainly i think when it comes to we've had this before some some people ask what's your gross profit margin going to be from this project and it's like (laughs) well do you really really? need to know that level level of detail or should it be more of value-based conversation of what's the return you're gonna get from that investment, not how but you worse, Kevin, it on, it's like
0: all by they, margin. They've no right to know that. They're buying a service. If they want to know exactly how much margin they're gonna make, or you're making, yep. well, hire an in-house team, because
1: then you'll yeah. know exactly
0: how much profit you'll make.
1: Do you think that's a warning sign when they ask questions like that, that they're actually Absolutely. thinking about in-housing?
0: Absolutely, well, I think it's a sign that they're thinking of in-housing. I think it's a sign that they're basically saying, we don't like suppliers making a profit, or we want to know exactly how much profit you're making out of us. If they're in that mindset, then be prepared for a constant shipping on price, be prepared for a client that's broadly always gonna be a bit dissatisfied. Whereas if it's a value-based conversation, it's like, look, we've got these outcomes we're looking for, we've got three suppliers we're talking to, how would you deliver the outcomes and what's your pricing mechanism? And then I'll decide if the ROI is big enough, Exactly. If you're going to make out of that 80% margin, I shouldn't care because I'm right. making a five to one return. I think a big mistake that happens in negotiations is people think about it from their own discipline, their own side. They don't think about it from the ROI's perspective of the client's going to spend 10 grand a month. If they get 50 grand a month of benefit, it's an easy negotiation. If you can't articulate the benefit but want them to spend 10 grand a month, yeah. don't be surprised if they start saying, well, no
1: and i I think that's the key it's it's leading it towards the value-based discussion as opposed to deliverables or the inputs because i I always like the analogy of if you're buying a car you're not going to ask how much did the handbrake cost you you want to know the total price what does that include and are there any extras what do they cost does the car
0: work has it got a service history exactly
1: yeah like the, the common questions but you're not going to ask for how long did this sit on the conveyor belt for and how much was your electricity bill, <laughs> exactly. etc., cetera, Like it That just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make any difference to the buyer, whatever the answer is. I do you feel like that's similar here? The other thing I just want to mention probably more before I forget is one thing I've definitely learned from you that I think it's been really useful is the concept of second and third generation contracts.
0: I think, uh, yeah.
1: I think that's really good to understand that when people are renegotiating, they want to get another win yep. on top of the last win that they've had. And certainly at times like this, it will be interesting to, to see what happens with contracts going up for renewal. Maybe they might get delayed, but I would imagine now they'll, they'll still come back out. But it does sound like procurement are likely to try and push people down on price as much as they can and if you are on that second and third generation contract Absolutely. you want to just give an overview on what that typically looks like from a margin perspective
0: i think that's a really i think that's a really important topic around so what we mean by second and third generation contracts is this let's say for the first time they're going to engage a client's going to engage more thoroughly in organic search uh, organic results uh, and they're going to invest in that. For so the first time they do that, if, they, if they've got little in-house experience and capability, they're going to write a spec and they're going to go to market and they're going to pick an agency. So the first time you do that, the buyer is relatively uninformed. Say it's a 12-month contract and then they want to have the right to benchmark or resource. Now they're at a year in, they're much better educated because they've seen you perform. Let's say they go to market again. Now they're like, well, I know exactly how the last year's worked. So I'm going to go for a two-year contract now, potentially, but I'm now much better informed. The pricing will be sharper. The SLAs will be sharper. The contract terms will be more difficult because they're more educated. So you're now on the second generation. Now, tell me it's the third generation. So you're at year three. I'm now really, really well informed. I know exactly where the value is. I know exactly what activities I can in-house versus use an agency. I know where your specialism is. I know what the market pricing is. I know what the ROI is. Negotiating a third generation contract is really hard to maintain a premium position because I'm a really well-informed buyer. And that, I think, anyone that's out there that's listening whereby they're being asked to bid for something that they know has been out in the marketplace with two or three other agencies over the last five years and that is going to be a very very difficult negotiation
1: do you think there's an alignment with the generation of contract versus everyone always talks about how it's cyclical in terms of in-house in versus outsourcing and maybe it gets to a certain point i think you might find if you've got say one integrated agency that does everything sometimes people are like oh we just want a single point of contact let's just talk to them and then they find that when you're doing marketing, you're always going to have a channel that performs incredibly well. And there's always going to be a high performing channel and a low performing channel. Yep. And over time, they'll then say, okay, well, the low performing channel, let's give this to someone else that's more specialized. And then it starts to break up. And also you then get the, well, we could do this in house, etc., but they don't always factor in the expertise, the training, the churn and everything else that agencies have to deal with alongside just simply having a, a price to deliver what, you're doing different skill sets etc but is there anything from a procurement perspective in terms of how they let's say you run an agency pitch is there often a comparison before or even after on this is what an agency can deliver what's the alternative if we were to
0: in-house us so i think if you go back when when do you think seo started to mature kevin how many years ago
1: i was going to say one (laughs) Um, it's so I started 2003 I feel like it's been maturing I think in 2006 when I started an agency it was maturing from the early days for sure already then and I think by 2012 it was when SEO really grew up into a you're building a brand you're doing things the right way and it's not manipulation in the way that it particularly was there's still growing up to do there's still an argument that seo is potentially even now one of the most immature if that's the right phrase channels out there in terms yeah. of how people view it and I, I as much as i'd like to defend that i'm i i do not think it's relatively unfair but yeah it's matured as a discipline over the last eight to ten years
0: so if i go back to let's say 2012 is a good benchmark time uh, whereby it starts to get serious more mature, it's more understood. So if in 2008, as a brand, you were intrigued by SEO, you knew it could add some value, but you're not quite sure how it's gonna work, and you had a large network agency that worked for you as a brand doing your public line advertising and all of your other media, yeah. you'd probably go to the network, can we do something in organic SEO? And they'd go, yeah, we'll tag it on. And they give you a price and off you'd go. And as a brand, as a buyer, back to your channel argument, you'd be going, it's all part of the mix, it's a bit of an experiment, we'll spend 20 grand a month and we'll see what happens. Wind that forward to 2012, what would happen is, the buyer would go, hang on a minute, right, I've got all of my marketing spend with one big network and they're doing paid social, they're doing organic, they're doing a bit of early days influencer, they're doing all sorts of stuff and they're buying all of my TV, hang on a minute, I know how this SEO works now, I'd get more value out of taking that out of scope and going to an independent high value specialist agency. So what I see happening is when value chains get uh, disaggregated and broken up is when the buyer starts to really understand how that market works as a supply side market, where the real value is, where the expertise lies and what's commodity versus what's specialist. And the in-housing trend is buyers, buyers start to think, hang on a minute, there's some stuff here which is relative commodity in this value chain i'm going to in-house that because it's just much more efficient because i'm at scale the really high value stuff that i don't use that often but is critical i'm going to use agencies for and so you see this swing around as the understanding matures then you start in-house versus outsource then you get a second wave and what happens is now the buyer understands exactly what the in-house insourcing cost is what the high value outsourcing cost is and they start to say to big networks again, you can take on everything, but it's gonna to to be a really, really good deal at a great price. Because so I know exactly now what it costs me to run my in-house team. Right. And that's where you start to see margins being squeezed in an industry, is as it matures, outsourcing becomes very attractive because the buyer's very educated. And they go, if you think you can deliver this as an integrated package for at a better value than I can in-house it for, and deliver the outcomes, on a consistent basis and get better outcomes, sure, bid for the work. But bear in mind, I'm really well educated.
1: It's interesting, this is definitely a topic for another podcast, but um, I just started reading Alan Weiss's Million Dollar Consultant and only literally started like first chapter, but I've heard it highly recommended. Already he's talking about from an agency perspective or a consultant perspective, where you're valued most is as a collaborator. And what he means by that is, you are sharing knowledge and upskilling clients as you work. it's not just a commodity of we pay you, you create stuff, go away, and do it it's you're working together, you're helping to develop and work together towards a de- desired outcome, but also that in-house team is developing further and that's certainly the way I think we work with our clients, but also in terms of what you're describing here, it sounds like um, that's been the shift as well we we've seen the early days i've had a client before that has signed a contract and said let's speak to you in 11 months about your renewal after they signed it it's like that's a long time ago now and it never happens anymore but it shows that these people were marketing managers marketing directors they're busy seo is something they're aware that they should do so they do it but they outsource all of it now it's much more collaborative in the sense of all of our clients typically have a head of seo we work together they they figured out if you want someone to do SEO it probably makes more sense to pay a full-time person on a salary as opposed to an agency but then you still need the expertise beneath that of how do you challenge the strategy that you have and support it how do you provide technical SEO content PR etc and all of these come at a cost that because uh, these specialisms are quite widespread bringing each of those in on a salary is actually more expensive quite often than hiring
0: I think on that expertise, you know, very high-end strategic skills. If you recruit someone to do that, the problem you've got is, you've now only got one expert to talk to. Whereas, if you go to an agency who's got that expertise, they're talking to tens of clients. So you get an aggregation effect of insight. Whereas once I'm in-house, then although I might be brilliant in my subject area, you're kind of starting to narrow my knowledge and experience of the, of the outside world.
1: It's very high risk to put a big decision on what you're doing down to one person. If it's yeah. an agency, it's a team of people, they're trained, they go to other people for different opinions, like you say, they, they see things across different sectors. It feels like, again, maybe it's... A, get fired for buying IBM style process but if you've hired an agency that is credible and they've got a track record and it doesn't go well you're probably in a safer position in that company as opposed to if you hired a person and they didn't work out I think the answer is balance I don't think it's that either one is right or wrong it's just it's interesting to know how those decisions are made and actually how heavily procurement might be involved in those decisions as well
0: I mean, interesting, as always happens to us, Kevin, we're kind of like, we're now 20 minutes into the kind of podcast and we said to our listeners that we would try and get it done by about 22 minutes or so. What that's saying to me is there's a load of content in this. So let, let's do another episode, maybe like, you know, next week, the week after with some of the other slides. Let me cover just one or two things to give a bit of a, an insight. So let me just like cover a couple of things, Kevin, because I've just like kind of making sure we've got some succinct messages for readers towards the end two things why do people train their negotiators because bluntly it's more profitable there was quite a lot of research done into this 2007 2008 quite a big study was done and they basically worked out negotiation maturity from phase kind of zero one i know nothing about negotiation i wing it through to phase five all my negotiators are fully trained we do annual retraining you know we do peer-to-peer learning all that good stuff what they worked out was if you looked at organizations that had a quite high level of negotiation maturity, their net profit, their net income change year on year was significantly higher than their peers.
1: That's really interesting. So what's the ROI on procurement as a cost versus not doing procurement, essentially?
0: So if it's from a purely procurement perspective, you train your negotiators, you tend to get more value out of them. You know, if you train your marketing people to be good, great negotiators, you'll probably get better ROI from their spend. So fundamentally, trained negotiators do better deals and get and make more money for their organizations. And that's not about slashing cost. That's about creating innovative deals. So what's your kind of experience of that, Kevin? Just a, kind of like a minute or so. Um, in what sense do you mean? Tra- being, um, so for example, the stuff that we do together. So like having me as a sounding board when we're negotiating, how much value do you think that creates? As opposed to you doing it on your own, because your team aren't very ex- experienced negotiators, like a solo where's the value add do you think?
1: The value add is looking at it from the other side of the table it's understanding what is it that they want to get out of it and how do I package something in a way that is listening to them because otherwise you just go off on a tangent that it could just be this is what I think I would look to achieve but it needs to be in their language and aligned with their goals so I think that's the the value add. I think the one thing to dig into next time that would be great is how to balance those cost savings versus, and this is a question you asked on LinkedIn, the cost savings versus the investment in growth on how you can take things further. And I think there's, again, two sides to the table on that in the sense of it's not all the agency's fault for in terms of what they're doing, but it's not all procurement's fault either. It's like there's there's things agencies could be doing to show this is the extra value you have for our premium costs. Yes. This is why you should buy it. Otherwise, procurement probably will do a kind of tick box exercise and pay like, for like. But I think the value add from, certainly talking with you, is how do we position that so that we can hold our prices? Or how do we, what are we willing to negotiate on? Is it invoice terms as opposed to rates? And stuff like that that you can use as leverage that I might not afford of, certainly in the initial phases. So
0: that's a great lead into, and we'll cover this in the next session, but there are some simple tools. So this is, I've, I've done lots of negotiation training with people, lots of, lots of negotiation support uh, on deals. There's one tool which people tend to like, and it's called MDOLAO, and that stands for the most desirable outcome, and your least acceptable outcome. So when you're thinking of negotiation, and there's some slides uh, in the uh, podcast resource uh, area, so you can download the slides. Basically, it says, think about the things you're going to negotiate around. So price and volume breaks, payment terms, the kind of KPIs that you're going to sign up to, contract duration, etc. For each one of those, think, what's my most desirable outcome? The best outcome I could possibly reasonably expect. So not something ridiculous, but reasonably expect. And then look at your least acceptable outcome, which is, What's the bottom end of the range that I'd accept? What's my kind of walkaway position? If you write those two things down for each of the parameters you're negotiating around, you'll be ten steps ahead of most people that do this. It's a very simple tool. It's very effective. It's very practical if you're entering the world of negotiation for the first time. I'll be covering a bit more detail next time when we go through it.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, I think that works really well. It shows otherwise the natural indication is you always think of price first. Exactly. How do we negotiate on price? How do we knock it down and And that's exactly
0: where i want you to go as a buyer i want you to just think about price yeah yeah because what i'll do is i'll negotiate all these other things you'll agree to all sorts of stuff and then i'll beat you up on price
1: yeah you're and one more thing
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my my mumbo negotiating technique yeah yeah yeah
1: exactly (laughs) which is really 12 more things but if you don't (laughs)
0: know (laughs) <laughs> it seven, in fact 12 more things so yes. just in summary what do you think can I, our listeners would, would have picked up from this
1: in terms of like balancing the deal that's that's really important of just again it's kind of seeing it from both sides i think we went a little off topic but in a good way so one of the things that we covered that i think is interesting is just those second and third generation tactics or yeah. and,
0: um, Oh, it was important definitely
1: and I think just being able to understand how educated is the buyer is really important from the seller side because then that impacts what you're going to do. And it's not that you're going to kind of go too far with your pricing. It's just, you know, if you're in for a hard negotiation or not, and then you can make a call on, do you want to be involved in this process?
0: I think that's a really critical point. You know, I think trying to understand the level of experience and expertise that your buyer has, it procurement or be it the marketing person that will prepare your mind for what's to come
1: yeah yeah i think so and i think the key point really is it's it's being prepared just doing some basic level groundwork homework training just puts you probably much further ahead than you would have been without that so understanding stuff from their side i think is hugely important and challenging yourself as you're going through the process to look at it from there their perspective and their side because it's not just about you want to get this and i mean again if entrepreneurs typically if they're like me for example you want won a pitch you just want to get it signed and started you don't want to spend time on it at the same time that like you you don't want to just accept everything that's being thrown at you so look at it from their perspective and try and still get it over the line as quickly as you can but in a way that it's a deal that you wanted to sign i think that's really important
0: and back to our kind of theme of our, uh, of our podcast, you know, it's a great start. What that means in this context is it's a great start if you start to think through your negotiation, but the prepared mind will win the day. Start with something, that MDO, LAO framework is a good place to start. Write it down and then talk to someone. Because yeah. when you talk to someone that's not involved in the deal, they'll come up with all sorts of other things, which is why it's a great start, but it's not the end.
1: Yeah, and it's making it win-win. It's like you have to give something that's compelling to the buyer, otherwise they're not going to buy it. But also you don't want to create something that doesn't make sense from day one because yes. to try and sell something that doesn't make sense and further down the line upsell it into something that does make sense doesn't really work. Exactly. So yeah, it's, it's framing it in the right way that it scales and goes beyond the initial agreement as well.
0: Thanks Kevin, I really enjoyed that. That was good.
1: Yeah, likewise.